This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. And finally we hear the word, stand by for torpedo attack. The water was very clear and you, the warheads on their torpedoes, on these two anyway, were painted bright yellow. And I could see them under the water come in and hit the ship. The bomb blast is a blast. Torpedo's kind of like a grumbling roar. One admiral said it's like a little dog shaking a rat, you know. It's just a roar, a rumble. But you know the guts of your ship are being torn out, but you don't know where. It's, it's quite a sensation to get hit by a torpedo. Uh, the Yorktown was 20,000 tons or whatever, and I'll swear it lifted us a couple feet off the, straight up in the air and right back down. The ship rolled up, rocked, Ship stem to stern, shook. I thought we were going to go right over. The hangar deck went down to the water, 26, 28 degrees, and you couldn't walk on the decks. Finally, the commanding officer uh, put a lord over the speakers, abandoned ship. In May of 1942, only 75 years ago, the world was at war. Hitler's German war machine, with the help of Mussolini's Italy, had conquered oil-rich North Africa. Steam rolled over Europe, conquering or dividing with Stalin's Russia everything in its wake, and was bombing England into submission, save only for the heroic efforts of the pilots of Britain's Royal Air Force. To paraphrase Winston Churchill, never before in history had so many people owed so much to so few. Millions of once free people in Europe were made subject to a powerful and cruel German occupation and millions were dragged off to prison camps or killed. Japan, secretly allied with Hitler and Mussolini since September of 1940, had launched a surprise attack from their aircraft carriers on the United States naval base at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii on December 7, 1941, killing over 2,403 American sailors and soldiers and devastating the American Pacific Fleet, with the exception of her aircraft carriers, which were not in Pearl Harbor on the day of the surprise attack. America's aircraft carriers and the men who flew the planes that were based on these carriers had never seen battle at sea. They had trained for it, but had no active battle experience. Battleships had always fought battleships. The concept of carrier groups using dive bombers, fighter planes, and low-flying torpedo planes to go on the attack was untested. But the Battle of the Coral Sea and the Battle of Midway fought in the Pacific Islands off the coast of Australia, which were huge naval battles that pitted opposing carrier-based forces, would change the nature of war and the history of battles forever. 
The winner here would ultimately win World War II. Everything was on the line. At the same time they attacked the U.S. at Pearl Harbor, Japan struck important targets all through the Pacific using the fleet of six aircraft carriers with huge numbers of cruisers, submarines, troop carriers, and battleships. Their buildup had been huge, and by defeating America's only remaining carrier group, they would control the Pacific and own an area covering 30% of the globe, including the Philippines, Australia, Burma, Ceylon, Indochina, and hundreds of islands in the Pacific that could be used as airstrips and for refueling. In order to be close enough to the west coast of the U.S. to present a substantial threat, which could be used as a bargaining chip, if not for a platform for attack in the future. Japan attacked the U.S. naval base in the Philippines on December 8, 1941, just nine hours after Pearl Harbor. The U.S. had built a number of bases there in the Philippines. The Japanese felt that America had grown weak, and having to fight a war now in two theaters, the Atlantic Theater in Africa and Europe, and the Pacific Theater, that America would crumble under the power of Japan's naval and air superiority. It was time to reduce fledgling America and all her navy to third world player status. They were clearly a lesser civilization and would fold like a house of cards in the face of Japanese might. And with the aid of Russia, with which Japan had signed a secret neutrality treaty, and Germany with their Italian allies, America had neither the will nor the resources to be a player in this war. America had clearly shown their lack of will and their fear of Germany by standing by and allowing Germany to bomb their closest ally, Britain, without entering the war. Against the empire of the rising sun, the weak sister America had no chance. In May of 1942, Roosevelt and Churchill were looking at a dire situation. The German army was smashing a Soviet offensive to regain Kharkov and would soon begin a drive to capture Soviet oil supplies in the Caucasus. Germans and Italians in North Africa were threatening the Suez Canal. The U.S. Pacific Fleet had been nearly devastated at Pearl Harbor, and Britain's Royal Navy had been driven out of the Indian Ocean. Japan and Germany were a hair's breadth from linking up in the Middle East, which would cut British and American supply lines through Iran to the Soviet Union, which potentially could cause the fall of British colonies like India and Burma to the Axis powers. The survival of the free world was literally hanging in the balance. going to set the table for you in order to illustrate why it was vitally important for the U.S. and its allies to defeat the Japanese at sea in the Pacific Theater in 1942. 
Here in part one, we'll cover the events that led up to the huge battle at Midway, including the surrender of American and British forces in the Philippines, the Battle of the Coral Sea, and the full battle of Midway and its outcome. In part two, we'll speak with the authors of the new bestseller, Never Call Me a Hero, which details the actions of Dusty Cleese, a dive bomber pilot attached to the USS Enterprise, who was a pivotal player in the Battle of Midway. And we'll put you in the pilot seat as he changed the course of history with dive bomber attacks that played a major role in sinking two of the five known Japanese carriers and a cruiser. Something Dusty never spoke of afterwards, hence the title, Never Call Me a Hero, but is revealed to present-day historians through the research efforts of Tim and Laura Orr and hours of interviews with Dusty Cleese and research of U.S. naval annals. In the six months since Pearl Harbor, very little had stood in the path of Japan with regard to dominating the Pacific. America had struck back in April of 1942 with a very effective surprise bombing raid on Tokyo, sending 16 B-25 Mitchell bombers off the carrier Hornet's decks and into the heart of Japan, with the American pilots knowing that if they still had enough fuel remaining after the attack, the chances of their coming out alive after crash-landing their bombers in China was negligible at best. But it worked, and Japan had felt the sting for the first time since Pearl Harbor. That attack, which killed tens of thousands of Japanese in retribution for their attack on Pearl Harbor, would be a huge factor in the distribution of Japanese defenses in the months to come. In the Philippines, the U.S.-Filipino resistance lasted until April 9, 1942, when U.S. General Edward P. King surrendered to the Japanese, a very ugly time in history for American, British, and Filipino people who were caught in the net. The American-built bases in the Philippines were well fortified up through the 1930s, but when the Philippines pushed for independence and won it, U.S. resources, including weapons for its defense, were pulled back, leaving a force of 100,000 Filipino troops with old Springfields and very little else. Just months before the Japanese attacked, the Philippine Army had merged with the U.S. forces stationed there. A buildup was planned to give them more U.S. support, and a huge reserve force was put together and sailed from San Francisco on December 5, 1941. But when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor on the 7th, the entire reserve force was redirected to Hawaii. Facing the full brunt of the Japanese Army and naval forces, the U.S.-Filipino forces fought back with everything they had. The main force of General Masaharu Hama's army came ashore at Lingayan Gulf on the morning of December 22, 1941. The American and Filipino defenders couldn't hold the beaches under the onslaught. General Wainwright, in charge of the defenses, phoned General MacArthur's headquarters and told him that any further defense of the beaches was impracticable. The fallback plan would involve abandoning the base there and moving back onto the Bataan Peninsula. The battle there began January 7, 1942, and continued until April 9th. It was a battle of epic proportions with the Americans and Filipino troops hopelessly surrounded, using old weapons and with ammunition and food and water running low. On April 9, 1942, about 12,000 Americans and 63,000 Filipinos who had been pushed back onto the Bataan Peninsula and Corregidor Island became prisoners of war and were subjected to the infamous Bataan Death March. I had an uncle who survived it, but like many who returned from World War II, he would never talk about it. But my father told me the story. 
The manner in which these prisoners were treated is a crime among many Japanese crimes of war that should never be forgotten. We hear much about the Nazis, and deservedly so, but little about Japanese atrocities. As a result, very few Americans or Brits shed a tear when Hiroshima and Nagasaki were destroyed. In 75 years, all that hatred has been replaced with a lasting peace, but never forget what mankind is capable of. The Japanese, after penning up tens of thousands of prisoners, basically watched them starve to death or taunted them to kill each other for scraps. They then forced the already weakened and starved prisoners to march 65 miles to a number of hastily assembled prison camps. Guards shot any man who fell or faltered during the five-day march in the intense heat. Along the way, the Japanese singled out prisoners, sometimes in groups, and shot them to death as examples to the others. Gold teeth were removed from living and dead prisoners. The prisoners started out from Mirabellis on June the 10th, having already been starving, and the battle wounded gone without medical treatment since the surrender 60 days before. Prisoners were beaten and tortured for enjoyment, as the common Japanese soldier did not recognize these men as POWs, but saw them as animals. One favorite means of torture was the sun treatment. Prisoners were forced to sit in the glaring sun without helmets or head covering. If they begged for water, they were shot. Some were forced to strip naked and sit within sight of fresh water. Trucks drove over the fallen. Cleaning crews selected from prisoners were chosen to execute the fallen. Marchers were randomly bayoneted or beaten with rifle butts. It was well known by the end of 1942 that if you had to surrender, your chances of being killed by the Japanese were extremely high in comparison to Germans. Between 7,000 and 18,000 American and Filipino men and women were killed after being tortured and abused. During the Bataan Death March alone, 600 American and somewhere near 7,000 Filipinos either died of exhaustion, dehydration, wounds, beheadings, or bullets. That's 100 or more dead bodies per mile. All captured women on Manila, along with Filipino citizens, were mistreated. Being forced to watch their babies bayoneted was only a part of their hell. Like the Chinese, who the Japanese invaded in 1937, the Filipino people hold very little love for the Japanese today. You get the point. The reason I'm making this point is to say that all parts of war are connected. This action begets other action. For Japan to achieve their objectives of capturing British, American, and Dutch oil-rich territories in the Pacific Theater, they needed to move troops by sea and control the skies as well. Without sea power, the crux of which was now clearly emerging as carrier force and submarine power, controlling the land was impossible. Air power was needed to protect their assets in the ocean. It was the carrier group with their dive bombers, torpedo bombers, and fighter planes that had launched the attack on Pearl Harbor, sinking 18 American ships. It was the carrier group that attacked and strafed all the strategic Allied defenses in the Pacific, preparing the way for troop landings. It was the carrier groups that were giving the Japanese the critical advantage in their attempt to dominate the Pacific. Very different from the German threat, which was predicated upon land troops, big guns, and for a while air power, which the RAF finally decimated, a huge factor in Germany's eventual downfall in 1944. German subs were extremely effective, but their battleships were more huge targets than offensive weapons, and they had no carriers. The Philippine Islands were one loss among many in the Pacific, but frighteningly representative 
of what all of the Pacific, including Australia, and all of Europe would suffer if the war was lost. And to be clear, no one in 1942 could have told you how it would all end up. It was a very frightening time. The loss in the Philippines was morally staggering to the United States, although Roosevelt, wrongly, was to hide the news of the Japanese brutality for two years. Among the world's civilized countries, there was no middle ground, unless you were Swiss, who declared neutrality and did not enter the fight against Germany. I have a close relative who was a boy in Norway when the Nazis came, and he has a lot to say still about the Swiss. We are not exaggerating when we say that to all those people around the world who loved freedom, in the dark and frightful year of 1942, only one average lifetime ago, Midway was probably the most important battle of the 20th century. It was time for the colossal rumble in the Pacific. Admiral Yamamoto's plan for the Pacific Theater was to invade Port Moresby in New Guinea and set up a base from which he could dominate the skies over northern Australia. He would use his carrier strike force to smash the only real opposition remaining in the Pacific by May of 1942, the U.S. Navy's Pacific Fleet, or what was left of it. His plan was to attack and then assault the two islands that comprised the Midway Atoll, knowing that the U.S. could not tolerate losing this strategic island to the Japs because it offered the Japanese a base from which they could refuel and attack U.S. naval ships at Pearl Harbor with impunity. An attack on Midway, Japan's Admiral Yamamoto reasoned, would draw what was left of the U.S. Navy out of hiding before they could rebuild and destroy them. The Japanese Navy, with the recent destruction of half the U.S. Pacific Fleet at Pearl Harbor, was far superior in strength to that of the U.S. Navy, with a full contingent of battleships and cruisers and six aircraft carriers under the direction of Vice Admiral Nagumo. Yamamoto's strategy worked, and the U.S., having no plausible choice but to commit, deployed the Yorktown, the Enterprise, and the Hornet carrier groups toward Midway. Midway is a small island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, about halfway between Hawaii and Japan. Small in size, but huge in importance due to its flatness and location on deep water, where it was able to serve as a base and refueling point for ships and aircraft of all types. Before the beginning of World War II, Midway was controlled by U.S. Marines under the direction of Lieutenant Colonel Harold D. Shannon. On December 7, 1941, the same day the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor and Wake Island, the Marine base at Midway came under attack by two Japanese destroyers, Ushio and Sazanami. The shelling began at 9.41 a.m. and lasted nearly one hour, severely damaging the American command, including communications and power plants, where First Lieutenant George Cannon was hit by shrapnel, causing arterial bleeding, and where he refused medical attention until they could get communications restored and the wounded Marines around him could receive attention. He was to receive the first Medal of Honor awarded to a Marine in World War II. The base came under attack from Japanese submarines and Zero fighters in the months to come, but never surrendered. Marine pilots operating out of Midway took heavy casualties against the faster and more nimble Japanese Mitsubishi Zero fighters in the months to come, until they learned a strategy called the Thatch Weave. The Thatch Weave was an aerial combat tactic developed by naval aviator John S. Thatch, T-H-A-C-H, and named by James H. Flatley of the United States Navy soon after the United States' entry into World War II. 
It is a tactical formation maneuver in which two or more Allied planes would weave in regularly intersecting flight paths to lure an enemy into focusing on one plane, while the targeted pilot's wingman would come into position to attack the pursuer. Thatch had heard from a report published in the 22nd September 1941 Fleet Air Tactical Unit Intelligence Bulletin of the Japanese Mitsubishi Zero's extraordinary maneuverability and climb rate. Before even experiencing it for himself, he began to devise tactics meant to give the slower-turning American Grumman F-4F Wildcat fighters a chance in combat. While based in San Diego, he would spend every evening thinking of different tactics that could overcome the Zero's maneuverability and speed, and would then test them in flight the following day. Working at night with matchsticks on the table, he eventually came up with what he called the beam defense position, but which soon became known as the thatch weave. It was executed either by two fighter aircraft side by side or by two pairs of fighters flying together. When enemy aircraft chose one fighter as his target, the two wingmen turned in towards each other. After crossing paths, and once their separation was great enough, they would then repeat the exercise, again turning in towards each other, bringing the enemy plane into the wingmen's sights. A correctly executed thatch weave, assuming the bait was taken and followed, left little chance of escape to even the most maneuverable opponent. Thatch called on Ensign Edward Butch O'Hare, who led the second section in Thatch's division, to test the idea. Thatch took off with three other Wildcats in the role of defenders. O'Hare, meanwhile, led four Wildcats in the role of attackers. The defending aircraft had their throttles wired to restrict their performance, while the attacking aircraft had their engine power unrestricted. This simulated an attack by superior fighter aircraft. Trying a series of mock attacks, O'Hare found that in every instance, Thatch's fighters, despite their power handicap, had either ruined his attack or actually maneuvered into position to shoot back. After landing, O'Hare excitedly congratulated Thatch. Skipper, it really worked. I couldn't make any attack without seeing the nose of one of your airplanes pointed right at me. Thatch carried out the first test of the tactic in combat during the Battle of Midway in June 1942, when a squadron of Zeros attacked his flight of four Wildcats. Thatch's wingman, Ensign R.A.M. Dibb, was attacked by a Japanese pilot and turned towards Thatch, who dove under his wingman and fired at the incoming enemy aircraft's belly until its engine ignited. The maneuver soon became standard among U.S. Navy pilots and was adopted by U.S. Army Air Force pilots. Marines fighting Wildcats from Henderson Field on Guadalcanal also adopted the thatch weave. The tactic initially confounded the Japanese Zero pilots flying out of Rabul. Saburo Sakai, the famous Japanese ace, relates their reaction to the thatch weave when they encountered Guadalcanal Wildcats using it. For the first time, Lieutenant Commander Tadashi Nakajima encountered what was to become a famous double-team maneuver on the part of the enemy. Two Wildcats jumped on the commander's plane. He had no trouble in getting on the tail of an enemy fighter, but never had a chance to fire before the Grumman's teammate roared at him from the side. Nakajima was raging when he got back to Rabul. He had been forced to dive and run for safety. The maneuver proved so effective that American pilots also used it during the Vietnam War, and it remains an applicable dogfighting tactic today. The Battle of the Coral Sea was fought from May 4th through May 8th, 1942, and was the first confrontation between carrier groups in history, also marking the first sea battle during which opposing ships did not fire directly at each other. Japan had begun the move to attack Port Moresby in New Guinea and Tulagi 
in the Solomons, sending several units of Japan's combined fleet under the command of Admiral Shigeyoshi Inoue. Thanks to intelligence gained from the Navy's Signals Intelligence Unit, the U.S. knew their plan and sent two U.S. Navy Carrier Task Forces and a joint Australian-American Cruiser Force to oppose the move under the command of Admiral Frank Fletcher. How important was SIGINT, Signals Intelligence, to the outcome of the Pacific War? Immense. Allied cooperation in the Pacific Theater included the Joint Royal Australian Navy, U.S. Navy Fleet Radio Unit, Melbourne, and the Central Bureau, which was attached to the HQ of the Allied Commander of the Southwest Pacific Area. At first, Central Bureau was made up of 50% American, 25% Australian Army, and 25% Royal Australian Air Force personnel. In addition, Royal Australian Air Force operators trained in Townsville, Queensland, in intercepting Japanese telegraphic Kutakana, were integrated into the new Central Bureau. Traffic analysts began tracking Japanese units in near real time. A critical result was the identification of the movement by sea of two Japanese infantry divisions from Shanghai to New Guinea. Their convoy was intercepted by U.S. submarines, causing almost complete destruction of these units. Army units in the Pacific included the U.S. 978th Signal Company, based at the Allied Intelligence Bureau's secret Camp X, near Beau Desert, Queensland, south of Brisbane. This unit was a key part of operations behind Japanese lines, including communicating with guerrillas and the Coast Watcher organization. It also sent radio operators to the guerrillas and then moved with the forces invading the Philippines. The network in Australia was listening to Yamamoto as he deployed forces. Exact locations weren't always known, but the size and strength of his assets and the date and times of deployment were being intercepted. On May 3rd and 4th, the Japanese captured Tulagi, although several of their supporting warships were sunk or damaged in surprise attacks launched from the legendary U.S. carrier Yorktown. This alerted the Japanese high command that the U.S. had taken the bait and was headed for Midway. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. The USS aircraft carrier Lexington CV-2, named Lady Lex, was an early aircraft carrier built for the United States Navy back in the late 20s. The Lexington was at sea when the Pacific War began, 7th of December, 1941, ferrying fighter aircraft to Midway Island. Her mission was canceled, and she returned to Pearl Harbor a week later. Lexington rendezvoused with the carrier Yorktown in the Coral Sea in early May of 1942. A few days later, the Japanese began Operation Mo, the invasion of Port Moresby, Papua New Guinea, and the two American carriers attempted to stop the invasion forces. They sank the light aircraft carrier Shoho on the 7th of May during the Battle of the Coral Sea, but did not encounter the main Japanese force of the carriers Shokaku and Zuikaku until the next day. The Lexington's crew and its fighter pilots were involved in heavy action in the weeks leading up to the Coral Sea encounter, and they were learning fast. In the following accounts, we'll hear the terms Wildcats, Devastators, and Dauntlesses. All three had a purpose and a place on the aircraft carriers. The F-4F Wildcats were fighter planes built by Grumman, which began service on carriers 
1940. With a top speed of 318 miles per hour, the Wildcat was outperformed by the faster 331 mile per hour, more maneuverable, and longer ranged Japanese Mitsubishi A6M Zeros. However, the F4F's ruggedness, coupled with tactics such as the Thatch Weave, previously explained, resulted in a claimed air combat kill to loss ratio of 5.9 to 1 in 1942, and as they improved, 6.9 kills to 1 kill for the entire war. The Wildcat fighter planes carried four 12.7-millimeter guns in the wings and had a range of 900 miles. They could carry two bombs, but rarely did. Their use is best applied in defense of the dive bombers and torpedo planes from attacking Japanese Zeros, in the defense of island fortifications like Midway, and in the defense of all carrier force ships. Needing less flight deck area for takeoff than the other planes, the Wildcats were always the first to take off from the decks. The Douglas SBD Dauntless were naval scout planes and dive bombers that were manufactured by Douglas Aircraft from 1940 through 1944. The SBD, stands for Scout Bomber Douglas, was the United States Navy's main carrier-borne scout plane and dive bomber through this time. It was also flown by the United States Marine Corps, both from land air bases and aircraft carriers. The SBD is best remembered as the bomber that delivered the fatal blows to the Japanese carriers at the Battle of Midway in June of 1942. During its combat service, the SBD was an excellent naval scout plane. The SBD possessed long-range, good handling characteristics, maneuverability, potent bomb load, great diving characteristics, good defensive armament with 50 caliber Browning machine guns in front and 32 caliber in the rear, and it was built well. It was hard to take down. It would climb to 10 or 20,000 feet above its target, then come screaming down out of the skies above a Japanese ship, delivering its payload at the last second, then pulling out of its dive before hitting the water. The SBD Navy pilots, like Dusty Cleese, whose story is included in the next episode, were extremely well-trained and had to be, because actually hitting the deck of a ship which was swerving to avoid being hit was like finding a needle in a haystack, a very tricky proposition. And the pilots' nerves, with anti-aircraft munitions exploding all around and Jap Zeros coming in from their blind side, had to be rock steady. It was the SBDs and pilots like Cleese that would determine the outcome of Midway and swing the outcome of the war to the advantage of the Allies. The third type of planes operating off the carriers were Douglas TBD Devastators, the torpedo bomber of the United States Navy, which were ordered in 1934, entering service in 1937. At that point, it was the most advanced aircraft flying for the Navy and possibly for any Navy in the world. But the fast pace of aircraft development quickly caught up with it, and by the time of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, the TBD was already outdated. They began to be replaced during the war with Grumman Avengers. The Devastator pilots knew what the score was and never hesitated. When you go to war, you go to war with what you've got. Acting with bravery and resolve throughout their service, they would score five major hits on the Japanese carrier Shoho at the onset of the Battle of the Coral Sea and ended up being virtually eliminated within the next month at Midway. During May 7th and May 8th, planes from both opposing carrier groups battled furiously for supremacy in the waters of the Coral Sea. The Japanese fleet carrier Shokaku was heavily damaged, while the American carrier, the Lexington CV-2, was mortally hit, exploding several hours after being attacked by Japanese dive bombers. 2,770 men were rescued from the Lexington, 
and 216 lost their lives before that ship went down after being scuttled. The fighting was crazy and non-stop. American pilots did locate two more Japanese carriers, which were spotted by a dauntless pilot named Joe Smith. He radioed in, and pilots from the Yorktown and the Lexington raced toward the Japanese carriers, Shokaku and Zuikaku. The two carriers were protected by 16 Zeros, but dive bombers from the Yorktown were able to hit the radically maneuvering carrier Zuikaku with two 1,000-pound bombs, causing heavy damage to the carrier's wooden flight deck, but not putting it out of action. The Yorktown torpedo planes failed to get any hits, partially due to misses, partially due to faulty torpedoes. The next attack by the Lexington torpedo bombers scored 11 misses, no hits. Aerial duels were commonplace throughout most of May 8th as the flight squadrons passed each other making return trips to their carriers, and at night on the 7th, some Japanese pilots mistook the Lexington's homing signal for their own, nearly landing on the Lexington's flight deck. It was a wild melee for two days, resulting in 90 Japanese aircrew lost in the attacks, compared to 35 for the U.S. The Japanese believed they had sunk two carriers, the Yorktown and the Lexington, plus an oiler and a destroyer. The Americans had prevented an invasion of Port Moresby, which was key to the Japanese plan of control, and they had learned much from this prolonged battle in the Coral Sea and were able to make fast improvements in carrier tactics and equipment, including fighter tactics, strike coordination, overcoming disadvantages with torpedo bombers and realizing the need for a new design and defensive strategies, such as anti-aircraft strategies, that would be put to use in the coming days and weeks. The Battle of Midway was a decisive naval battle in the Pacific theater of World War II, fought between June 4th and June 7th, 1942, only six months after Japan's attack on Pearl Harbor and one month after the Battle of the Coral Sea. By anyone's standards, it changed the course of history by virtually eliminating the Japanese carrier force from the Pacific theater and providing a huge psychological benefit to the Allies in knowing that the war could be won. Not would be, but could be. And that was all the U.S. needed. Military historian John Keegan called it the most stunning and decisive blow in the history of naval warfare. Most significantly, American cryptographers were able to determine the date and location of the planned attack, enabling the forewarned U.S. Navy to prepare its own ambush. We'll tell that story in a moment. There were seven aircraft carriers involved in the battle, and all four of Japan's large aircraft carriers, Akagi, Kaga, Soryu, and Hiryu, part of the sixth carrier force that had attacked Pearl Harbor six months earlier. And a heavy cruiser was also lost while the U.S. lost the carrier Yorktown and the destroyer. The U.S. would end up losing 150 aircraft and 300 men killed, while the Japanese lost four aircraft carriers, one heavy cruiser sunk, and a second badly damaged, 348 aircraft, and 3,057 killed. It was a massive hit to Japanese confidence, although news of the losses did not reach the mainland. Japan carefully hid all its major losses, going so far as to send the wounded, captains, and crews that fought through Midway to remote posts in the Pacific with orders not to talk about what had happened to their ships. After Midway and the exhausting attrition of the Solomon Islands campaign, Japan's capacity to replace its losses in materiel, particularly aircraft carriers, and men, especially well-trained pilots and maintenance crewmen, rapidly became insufficient to cope with mounting casualties 
while the United States' massive industrial and training capabilities made losses far easier to replace. Typical of Japanese naval planning during World War II, Yamamoto's battle plan for taking Midway, named Operation MI, was exceedingly complex. It required the careful and timely coordination of multiple battle groups over hundreds of miles of open sea. His design was also predicated on optimistic intelligence suggesting that the USS Enterprise and the USS Hornet, forming Task Force 16, were the only carriers available to the U.S. Pacific Fleet. During the Battle of the Coral Sea, one month earlier, you'll remember that the USS Lexington had been sunk and the USS Yorktown damaged so severely that the Japanese believed she too had been lost. However, following hasty repairs at Pearl Harbor, Yorktown sortied and would go on to play a critical role in the discovery and eventual destruction of the Japanese fleet carriers at Midway. Also, Yamamoto's plan included attacking and controlling the American Marine base at Midway Island, which, due to the unbreakable courage of the Marine station there, failed to roll over to the Japanese. Midway was able to serve as a fixed-location aircraft carrier for all types of planes during the battle, adding a second carrier to the Yorktown, leaving Yamamoto underestimating American strength by two carrier strike forces. If you can count a fixed location island as a carrier, which had certainly performed the same function. Finally, much of Yamamoto's planning, coinciding with the general feeling among the Japanese leadership at the time, was based on a gross misjudgment of American morale, which we previously discussed and which was believed to be affected from the string of Japanese victories in the preceding months. We know from earlier in this episode that Yamamoto wanted to lure the U.S. carrier fleet into a trap at Midway so he could destroy our carrier forces once and for all, and that the U.S. had no choice but to take the bait or risk another attack on Pearl, as Midway was a critical port, runway, and refueling station located within striking distance of Pearl Harbor. On Midway, by 4th of June, the U.S. Navy had stationed four squadrons of PBYs, 31 aircraft in total, for long-range reconnaissance duties, and six brand-new TBF-1 Avengers, the latter a detachment from Hornet's VT-8. The Marine Corps stationed 19 SBD Dauntlesses, seven F-4F-3 Wildcats, 17 SBTU-3 Vindicators, and 21 F-2A-3s. The U.S. Army Air Force contributed a squadron of 17 B-17 Flying Fortresses and 8 B-26 Marauders equipped with torpedoes. In total, 126 aircraft. Although the F-2As and SB-2Us were already obsolete, they were the only aircraft available to the Marine Corps at the time. What Yamamoto did not know was that the U.S. had broken the main Japanese naval code dubbed JN-25 by the Americans, divulging many details of his plan to the enemy. Since early 1942, the U.S. had been decoding messages stating that there would soon be an operation at Objective AF. It was not initially known where AF was, but Commander Joseph Rochefort and his team at Station Hypo in Hawaii were able to confirm that it was Midway. The powers that were in Washington, D.C., Originally did not believe that Hypo's assessment was correct, however, and now the decision fell upon Admiral Nimitz to make the decision on whether or not to plan his entire strategy around Hypo's intelligence or not. Hypo needed the proof that their intelligence was correct. Captain Wilfred Holmes devised a ruse of telling the base at Midway by secure undersea cable 
to broadcast an uncoded radio message stating that Midway's water purification system had broken down. I took over. He told Leighton, he says, I want you to tell me what Admiral Yamamoto was thinking and planning and, and most importantly, I want you to tell me today what he's going to do tomorrow. And Japanese communications were being transmitted by Morse code in, in digits, in numbers. The digits of the JN25 code were, were five digits, five-digit code groups. By the time of the Battle of Midway, we had recovered probably 40% of those code groups. And the result of that was we were able to read enough of the message texts to make intelligent sense out of what the message was about. We knew from the follow-up translations after the Pearl Harbor attack that, that uh, uh, Pearl Harbor was uh, A-H. And uh, we also had had references to AF and an AK. We discovered that AK, it was AK, was French frigate Shoals. And that's where the submarines met. And uh, we knew that Hawaii was AH. There was also one reference in some of that traffic to AF, uh, which we kind of deduced was uh, Midway. The Naval Air Station at AF had reported to his headquarters in Hawaii that he had a water casualty and needed had a limited supply of fresh water. Well, that cinched it. That cinched Within 24 hours, the codebreakers picked up a Japanese message that AF was short on water. No Japanese radio operators who intercepted the message seemed concerned that the Americans were broadcasting uncoded that a major naval installation close to the Japanese threat ring was having a water shortage, which could have tipped off Japanese intelligence officers that it was a deliberate attempt at deception. Hypo was also able to determine the date of the attack as either the 5th or 4th of June, and to provide Nimitz with a complete Japanese order of battle. Japan had a new codebook, but its introduction had been delayed, enabling Hypo to read messages for several crucial days. The new code, which would take several days to be cracked, came into use on the 24th of May, but the important breaks had already been made. Nimitz went with Hypo's assessment and planned what he called the ambush. As a result, the Americans entered the battle with a very good picture of where, when, and in what strength the Japanese would appear. Nimitz knew that the Japanese had negated their numerical advantage by dividing their ships in four separate task groups, all too widely separated to be able to support each other. This dispersal resulted in few fast ships being available to escort the carrier strike force, reducing the number of anti-aircraft guns protecting the carriers. Nimitz calculated that the aircraft on his three carriers, plus those on Midway Island, gave the U.S. rough parity with Yamamoto's four carriers, mainly because American carrier air groups were larger than Japanese ones. The Japanese, by contrast, remained mainly unaware of their opponent's true strength and dispositions even after the battle began. At 0900, 9 o'clock a.m., on June 3rd, Ensign Jack Reed, piloting a PBY from U.S. Navy Patrol Squadron VP-44, spotted the Japanese occupation force 500 nautical miles west-southwest of Midway. He mistakenly reported this group as the main force. Nine B-17s took off from Midway at 12.30 for the first air attack. Three hours later, they found Tanaka's transport group 570 nautical miles to the west. 
under heavy anti-aircraft fire, they dropped their bombs. Although their crews reported hitting four ships, none of the bombs actually hit anything, and no significant damage was inflicted. Early the following morning, the Japanese oil tanker Akibono Maru sustained the first hit when a torpedo from an attacking PBY struck her around 1 o'clock. This was the only successful air-launched torpedo attack by the U.S. during the entire battle. At 4.30 on the 4th of June, Nagumo launched his initial attack on Midway itself, consisting of 36 Aichi D-3A dive bombers and 36 Nakajima B-5N torpedo bombers, escorted by 36 Mitsubishi Zeros. At the same time, he launched his eight search aircraft, one from the heavy cruiser Tone, launched 30 minutes late. Japanese reconnaissance arrangements were flimsy, with too few aircraft to adequately cover the assigned search areas, laboring under poor weather conditions to the northeast and east of the task force. As Nagumo's bombers and fighters were taking off, 11 PBYs were leaving Midway to run their search patterns. At 0534, a PBY reported sighting two Japanese carriers and another spotted the inbound airstrike 10 minutes later. American radar picked up the enemy at a distance of several miles, and interceptors were scrambled. Unescorted bombers headed off to attack the Japanese carriers, their fighter escorts remaining behind to defend Midway. Almost an hour out from the takeoff, Bert called over the intercom and said, I can see some ships on the horizon, large ships, almost within minutes of that occurring. Then Manning called over the intercom and said, we're being attacked by Japanese fighter planes. Well, there wasn't any question, but we had found them. The question was, who had found who? <laughs> I was down on my knees with my 30 caliber machine gun. So I looked back over my shoulder, and I could see the turret had stowed, and that Jim was hanging just in the, in the harness, and obviously blood everywhere. That He was obviously dead at that point. And we drove, drove down to the water. The other section of three did the same, but they were a little behind us. I never could see exactly what happened to them. I just don't remember exactly when they stopped firing at me. I don't guess they ever stopped firing at me. Then the next thing I remember, I felt a real hot, almost like a soldering iron on my wrist. It was actually a, a bullet that had grazed me and cut my wrist open, but not severely, just enough to to cause some bleeding. But then I went back to my gun position, still down on my knees. And then the next thing that I do remember was hanging down and coming to, and I put my hand up on my head, and it almost felt like a hole in my head and just blood pouring off. And uh, I was wearing a baseball cap at the time, and uh, this is my cap that I had on and there's the bullet hole in the, in the cap where I'd been hit on the head. About that time, uh, my stick went left in, in the hand, my hand. He started down just slightly, with the trim just slightly nose down. I figured, well, anything I can do, I'm going to go in the water, but I'm going to drop this torpedo or something anyway. So I kicked the airplane to the left. But I got in a position where I thought I had a decent lead on the ship and, could, and drop, and I dropped the torpedo. After I dropped the torpedo, as I was about to hit the water, I rolled the elevator tram back. 
which I hadn't, I'd forgotten. I thought when I, when I lost it and she started going down, that my elevators were gone. The elevator trim taps were still there. And I had goofed and not realized it. Maybe it saved my life, I don't know. When you're in a situation like that, time almost loses any significance. And, uh, but I can remember hearing stuff hitting the airplane. And then after a while, it got pretty quiet. And so then I got on the intercom and uh, called Ensign Ernest and, and told him that Tim was dead and asked for permission to climb up into the second seat behind the pilot. And he gave me permission to do that. And then we just motored on for probably an hour or close to an hour. And I guess simultaneously both he and I could see a lot of black smoke on the horizon and made the assumption that that probably was Midway and Midway was on fire. At 0620, Japanese carrier aircraft bombed and heavily damaged the U.S. base at Midway. A young Marine commander named John Ford captured color footage of the attack on Midway, which can be found with an easy search online. Ford would later become a famous Hollywood producer, best known for his John Wayne films, producing 157 films and winning seven Academy Awards. He retired from the Navy as a rear admiral. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Midway-based Marine fighters, which included seven F-4Fs and 21 F-2As, intercepted the Japanese and suffered heavy losses, although they managed to destroy four B-5Ns and at least three A-6Ms. Within the first few minutes, three F-4Fs and 13 F-2As were destroyed, while most of the surviving U.S. planes were damaged, with only two remaining airworthy. American anti-aircraft fire was intense and accurate, destroying four additional Japanese aircraft and damaging many more. Of the 108 Japanese aircraft involved in the attack on Midway Island, 11 were destroyed, 14 were heavily damaged, and 29 were damaged to some degree. The initial Japanese attack did not succeed in neutralizing Midway. American bombers could still use the airbase to refuel and attack the Japanese invasion force, and most of Midway's land-based defenses were still intact. Japanese pilots reported to Nagumo that a second aerial attack on Midway's defenses would be necessary if troops were to go ashore by 7th of June. Having taken off prior to the Japanese attack, American bombers based on Midway made several attacks on the Japanese carrier force. These included six Grumman Avengers detached to Midway from the USS Hornet's VT-8. Midway was the first combat mission for the VT-8 airmen and the combat debut of the TBF. The first Marine aviator to perish in battle Major Lofton R. Henderson of VMSB-241 was killed while leading his inexperienced Dauntless Squadron into action. The main airfield at Guadalcanal was named after him in August of 1942. Henderson Airfield One B-26, after being seriously damaged by anti-aircraft fire, veered into a steep dive straight toward the Akagi. Making no attempt to pull out of its run, the aircraft narrowly missed crashing directly into the carrier's bridge which would have killed Nagumo and his command staff. 
This experience may well have contributed to Nagumo's determination to launch another attack on Midway in direct violation of Yamamoto's order to keep the reserve strike force armed for anti-ship operations. War historians and generals will tell you that every action, no matter how seemingly inconsequential it looks like on the surface at the time, causes a reaction, and the Battle of Midway was to be no exception to that rule. The heroic stand the American pilots were making at Midway prompted Nagumo, in charge of the Japanese task force, to order that his reserve planes, which were half his air power, be refitted with land bombs instead of the bombs intended for ships. But now, at 8 a.m. on the morning of June 5th, Nagumo suddenly receives word that a sizable American force has been spotted to the east, and again he orders a refit, delaying his reserve force, sparing Midway from a follow-up attack, at least for the moment. Most importantly, in the hurry to change out the bombs, the land bombs are being stacked in wire crates located on the flight deck. In accordance with Japanese carrier doctrine at the time, Admiral Nagumo had kept half his aircraft in reserve. These comprised two squadrons each of dive bombers and torpedo bombers. The dive bombers were as yet unarmed. The torpedo bombers were armed with torpedoes should any American warships be located. Then, the same scout plane that had sent the first message to Nagumo regarding the presence of a carrier force finally radioed the presence of a single carrier. This was one of the carriers from Task Force 16. The other carrier was not sighted. Nagumo was now in a quandary. Rear Admiral Tamon Yamaguchi, leading Carrier Division 2, the Hiryu and the Soryu, recommended that Nagumo strike immediately with the forces at hand. 18 Aichi dive bombers, each on Soryu and Hiryu, and half the ready cover patrol aircraft. Nagumo's opportunity to hit the American ships was now limited by the imminent return of his midway strike force, nearly out of gas and needing to land or risk ditching. To complicate that, because of the constant flight deck activity associated with combat air patrol operations during the preceding hour, the Japanese never had an opportunity to position their reserve planes on the flight deck for launch. Japanese carrier doctrine preferred the launching of fully constituted strikes rather than piecemeal attacks. Without confirmation of whether the American force included carriers, that information not being received until about 8.20, Nagumo's reaction was, by the book. In addition, the arrival of another land-based American airstrike at 7.53 gave weight to the need to attack the island again. In the end, Nagumo decided to wait for his first strike force to land, then launch the reserve which would by then be properly armed with torpedoes. In the final analysis, it made no difference. Fletcher's carriers had launched their planes beginning at 0700, so the aircraft that would deliver the crushing blow were already on their way. Even if the Gumo had not strictly followed carrier doctrine, he could not have prevented the launch of the American attack. And the next few hours would change the course of history. The Americans had already launched their carrier aircraft against the Japanese. Fletcher, in overall command aboard the Yorktown and benefiting from PBY sighting reports from the earlier morning, ordered Spruance to launch against the Japanese as soon as was practical, while initially holding Yorktown in reserve in case any other Japanese carriers were found. The first plane took off from Spruance's carriers Enterprise and Hornet a few minutes after 0700. Fletcher, upon completing his own scouting flights, followed suit at 0800 from Yorktown. Fletcher, along with Yorktown's commanding officer, Captain Elliot Buckmaster, and their staffs, had acquired first-hand experience in organizing and launching a full strike against an enemy force in the Coral Sea. 
but there was no time to pass these lessons on to Enterprise and Hornet, which were tasked with launching the first strike. Spruance ordered the striking aircraft to proceed to target immediately, rather than waste time waiting for the strike force to assemble, since neutralizing enemy carriers was the key to the survival of his own task force. While the Japanese were able to launch 108 aircraft in just seven minutes, it took Enterprise and Hornet over an hour to launch nearly the same number. Spruance judged that the need to throw something at the enemy as soon as possible was greater than the need to coordinate the attack by aircraft of different types and speeds. Accordingly, American squadrons were launched piecemeal and proceeded to the target in several different groups. It was accepted that the lack of coordination would diminish the impact of American attack and increase their casualties, but Spruance calculated that this was worthwhile since keeping the Japanese under aerial attack impaired their ability to launch a counter-strike, and he gambled that he would find Naguma with his flight decks at their most vulnerable at that time. American carrier aircraft had difficulty locating the target despite the positions they'd been given. The strike from Hornet, led by Commander Stanhope C. Ring, followed an incorrect heading of 265 degrees rather than the 240 degrees indicated by the contact report. As a result, Air Group 8's dive bombers missed the Japanese carriers. Torpedo Squadron 8 from the Hornet, led by Lieutenant Commander John C. Waldron, broke formation from Ring and followed the correct heading. The 10 F-4Fs from Hornet ran out of fuel and had to ditch. Waldron's squadron sighted the enemy carriers and began attacking at 9.20 a.m., followed by Torpedo Squadron 6 from the Enterprise, whose Wildcat fighter escorts also ran low on fuel and had to turn back at 9.40. Without fighter escort, all 15 TBD devastators of VT-8 were shot down without being able to inflict any damage. And I continually think, you know, of my good friend, Tom Eversole from Pocatello, Idaho. Here, uh, he, he knew uh, that, that his chances of, of survival were almost zilch. And yet, in other words, uh, still going out there, doing his thing, you know, doing this, this incredible thing, giving us just a, a perfect chance to do our job. And, and I figure, well, if there, if there aren't any saints in heaven, he has to be going. Ensign George H. Gay Jr. was the only survivor of the 30 aircrew of VT-8. VT-6 lost 10 of its 14 devastators and 10 of Yorktown's VT-3's 12 devastators were shot down with no hits to show for their effort, thanks in part to the abysmal performance of their unimproved Mark 13 torpedoes. Midway was the last time the TBD devastator was used in combat. The Japanese Combat Air Patrol, or CAP, flying Mitsubishi Zeros made short work of the unescorted slow underarmed TBDs. A few TBDs managed to get within a few ship lengths range of their targets before dropping their torpedoes, close enough to be able to strafe the enemy ships and force the Japanese carriers to make sharp, evasive maneuvers. But all of their torpedoes either missed or failed to explode. Remarkably, senior Navy and Bureau of Ordnance officers never questioned why half a dozen torpedoes released so close to the Japanese carriers produced no results. The abysmal performance of American torpedoes in the early months of the war became a scandal. 
torpedo after torpedo either missed by running directly under the target, prematurely exploded, or struck targets with textbook right-angle hits, sometimes with an audible clang, and failed to explode. Despite their failure to score any hits, the American torpedo attacks achieved three important results. First, they kept the Japanese carriers off balance and unable to prepare and launch their own counter-strike. Second, the poor control of the Japanese combat air patrol meant they were out of position for subsequent attacks. Third, many of the Zeros ran low on ammunition and fuel. The appearance of a third torpedo plane attack from the southeast from the Yorktown at 10 o'clock very quickly drew the majority of the Japanese combat air patrol to the southeast quadrant of the fleet. By chance, at the same time, three squadrons of SBDs from Enterprise and Yorktown were spotted by the Japanese as they were approaching from the southwest and northeast. The Yorktown squadron had flown just behind VT-3, but elected to attack from a different course. The two squadrons from Enterprise were running low on fuel because of the time spent looking for the enemy, but Enterprise Squadron Commander Wade McCluskey Jr. decided to continue the search and by good fortune spotted the wake of the Japanese destroyer Arashi steaming at full speed to rejoin Nagumo's carriers after having unsuccessfully depth-charged U.S. submarine Nautilus, which had unsuccessfully attacked the battleship Hiroshima. This is another great example of how seemingly unrelated action turned the tide of an entire battle. The U.S. sub Nautilus had somehow been able to position itself smack in the middle of the Japanese carrier fleet and launched some torpedoes, which struck the battleship Hiroshima. The destroyer Arashi lingered back to drop depth charges for about an hour until finally deciding to catch up with the carriers. McCluskey's decision to continue the search and his judgment in the opinion of Admiral Chester Nimitz decided the fate of our carrier task force and our forces at Midway. The destroyer Arashi, in its haste to get back to the Japanese fleet, led McCluskey's planes right to the carrier task force. All three American dive bomber squadrons arrived almost simultaneously at the perfect time, locations, and altitudes to attack. Most of the Japanese combat air patrol was focusing on the torpedo planes of VT-3 and were out of position. Armed Japanese strike aircraft filled the hangar decks. Fuel hoses snaked across the decks as refueling operations were hastily being completed, and the repeated change of ordnance meant that bombs and torpedoes were stacked around the hangars rather than stowed safely in the magazines, making the Japanese carriers extraordinarily vulnerable. Beginning at 10.22 a.m., the two squadrons of Enterprise's air group split up with the intention of sending one squadron each to attack Kaga and Akagi. A miscommunication caused both of the squadrons to dive at the Kaga. Recognizing the error, Lieutenant Commander Richard Halsey Best and his two wingmen were able to pull out of their dives and, after judging that Kaga was doomed, headed north to attack Akagi, coming under the onslaught of bombs from almost two full squadrons. I was amazed to see that uh, the deck was a bright yellow because our decks had been, uh, had been stained a North Pacific blue ever since the start of the war. And in addition to the deck being a bright yellow, the big rising sun up forward of the elevator, it was glowing red, was like a tremendous advertisement of here we are, that we are the Japanese Navy.
and she was a mass of flames from bow to stern with tremendous eruptions coming up every four to five seconds as a bomb must have hit. Simultaneously, Commander McClatchy and his squadron were bombing the Kaga. Kaga sustained four or five direct hits, which caused heavy damage and started multiple fires. One of the bombs landed near the bridge, killing Captain Jisaku Okada and most of the ship's senior officers. Lieutenant Clarence E. Dickinson, part of McCluskey's group, recalled, We were coming down in all directions on the port side of the carrier. I recognized her as the Kaga, and she was enormous. The target was utterly satisfying. I saw a bomb hit just behind where I was aiming. I saw the deck rippling and curling back in all directions, exposing a great section of the hangar below. I saw my 500-pound bomb hit right abreast of the carrier's island. The two 100-pound incendiary bombs struck in the forward area of the park planes. Here is a portion of an interview with Dauntless pilot Dusty Cleese, the subject of our next episode, an interview with the authors of Never Call Me a Hero, which is Dusty's story and a gripping account of the story of Midway. The uh, McCluskey and his two pilots and saw that they, they, they missed. Then I uh, watched Earl Gallagher and he hit, and I thought that probably was his two 100-pound incendiaries. And next thing you know, here this whole thing, you know, going from that little thing up into it, it was a, a wall of flames like 50 feet high and coming up towards the, the front of the ship. Earl Gallagher went as low as is possible. He, his pullout was probably less than 500 feet. And I don't think mine was much higher than that either, just to make absolutely sure that we're going to get a hit. So I watched uh, and made sure that I had landed, you know, right, right near the red circle. Because of the uh, structure of the Japanese ships, the hangar decks uh, have no access to the outside. They're all closed in. So if a bomb goes down to the hangar deck and explodes, it ain't going to be out the side. The explosion won't, won't uh, uh, go out the side. It all takes place inside. So it's just like an uh, uh, explosion followed by an implosion. I released and uh, uh, immediately turned to counter his attack. He got down as low as the water was up. And we're now in the middle of the Japanese fleet. Several minutes later, Best and his two wingmen dived on the Akagi. Mitsuo Fuchida, the Japanese aviator who had led the attack on Pearl Harbor, was on the Akagi when it was hit and described the attack. A lookout screamed, Hell divers! I looked up to see three black enemy planes plummeting towards our ship. Some of our machine guns managed to fire a few frantic bursts at them, but it was too late. The plump silhouettes of the American Dauntless dive bombers quickly grew larger, and then a number of black objects suddenly floated eerily from their wings. Although Akagi sustained only one direct hit, it proved to be a fatal blow. The bomb struck the edge of the midship deck elevator and penetrated to the upper hangar deck, where it exploded among the armed and fueled aircraft in the vicinity. Nagumo's chief of staff, Ryunosuke Kusaka, recorded, A terrific fire, bodies all over the place. Planes stood tail up, belching livid flames and jet black smoke, making it impossible to bring the fires under control. Another bomb exploded underwater very close astern. The resulting geyser bent the flight deck upward in grotesque configurations and caused crucial rudder damage. Simultaneously, Yorktown's VB-3, commanded by Max Leslie, went for Soryu, scoring at least three hits and causing extensive damage. 
Some of Leslie's bombers did not have any bombs as they were accidentally released when the pilots attempted to use electrical arming switches. Nevertheless, Leslie and others still dove, strafing carrier decks and providing cover for those who had bombs. Gasoline ignited, creating an inferno while stacked bombs and ammunition detonated. VT-3 targeted Hiryu, which was hemmed in by Soryu, Kaga, and Akagi, but achieved no hits. Within six minutes, Soryu and Kaga were ablaze from stern to stern as fire spread through the ships. Akagi, having been struck by only one bomb, took longer to burn, but the resulting fires quickly expanded and soon proved impossible to extinguish. She too was eventually consumed by flames and had to be abandoned. All three carriers remained temporarily afloat as none had suffered damage below the waterline other than rudder damage to the Akagi caused by the near miss close astern. Despite initial hopes that Akagi could be saved or at least towed back to Japan, all three carriers were eventually abandoned and scuttled. Hiryu, the sole surviving Japanese aircraft carrier, wasted little time in counterattacking. Hiryu's first attack wave, consisting of 18 D-3As and six fighter escorts, followed the retreating American aircraft and attacked the first carrier they encountered, Yorktown, hitting her with three bombs, which blew a hole in the deck, snuffed out her boilers, and destroyed one anti-aircraft mount. The damage also forced Admiral Fletcher to move his command staff to the heavy cruiser Astoria. And far as uh, the battle, uh, never been in anything like that. It's just absolutely unbelievable what that guy up there is trying to kill me. And the other thing is, when they had dive bombers, that dive bomber was after me, nobody else. My uh, general quarters were on the flight deck. But the twists and turns, and I gotta say a good word for Captain Buckmaster, he saved that ship, uh, conning it away from torpedoes and bombs. But anyway, we had a lot of clear, uh, close misses on the starboard side. But Captain Buckmaster would see the dive bombers coming down and give hard to port or hard to starboard, whichever. But we did take some real structural damage from near misses, the concussion and the shrapnel from the bombs caused the severe damage. But the one bomb that hit the deck went down to the fourth level and killed the repair party. Repair teams were able to temporarily patch the flight deck and restore power to several boilers within an hour, giving her a speed of 19 knots and enabling her to resume air operations. Thirteen Japanese dive bombers and three escorting fighters were lost in this attack. Approximately one hour later, Hiryu's second attack wave, consisting of 10 B-5Ns and six escorting A-6Ms, arrived over the Yorktown. The repair efforts had been so effective that the Japanese pilots assumed the Yorktown must be a different, undamaged carrier. They attacked, crippling Yorktown with two torpedoes. She lost all power and developed a 23-degree list to port. Five torpedo bombers and two fighters were shot down in this attack. News of the two strikes, with the mistaken reports that each had sunk an American carrier, greatly improved Japanese morale. The few surviving aircraft were all recovered aboard Hiryu, Despite the heavy losses, the Japanese believed that they could scrape together enough aircraft for one more strike against what they believed to be the only remaining American carrier. Late in the afternoon, a Yorktown scout aircraft located Hiryu, prompting Enterprise to launch a final strike 
of 24 dive bombers, including six SBD Dauntlesses from VS-6, four SBDs from VB-6, and 14 SBDs from Yorktown's VB-3. Despite Hiryu being defended by a strong cover of more than a dozen Zero fighters, the attack by Enterprise, an orphaned Yorktown aircraft launched from Enterprise, was successful. Four, possibly five bombs hit Hiryu, leaving her ablaze and unable to operate aircraft. Hornet Strike, launched late because of a communications error, concentrated on the remaining escort ships, but failed to score any hits. Pilot Dusty Cleese describes his second carrier hit of the day in the action here. Her, uh, missed. So I, I took his corrections, you know, figuring, you know, he had already did this much, so I added in that I did in the morning. And I'm pretty sure they landed on the, exactly on the same place on the ship, on the Hear You, as I did that uh, morning on the, on the uh, cargo. After futile attempts at controlling the blaze, most of the crew remaining on Hear You were evacuated, and the remainder of the fleet continued sailing northeast in an attempt to intercept the American carriers. Despite a scuttling attempt by a Japanese destroyer that hit her with a torpedo and then departed quickly, Hear You stayed afloat for several more hours, being discovered early the next morning by an aircraft from the escort carrier Hoshu, and prompting hopes she could be saved, or at least towed, back to Japan. Soon after being spotted, though, Hear You sank. Rear Admiral Tamon Yamaguchi, together with the ship's captain, Tomeo Kaku, chose to go down with the ship, costing Japan perhaps her best carrier officer. As darkness fell, both sides took stock and made tentative plans for continuing the action. Admiral Fletcher, obliged to abandon the derelict Yorktown and feeling that he could not adequately command from a cruiser, ceded operational command to Spruance. Spruance knew the United States had won a great victory, but he was still unsure of what Japanese forces remained and was determined to safeguard both Midway and his carriers. To aid his aviators, who had launched at extreme range, he had continued to close with Nagumo during the day and persisted as night fell. Finally, fearing a possible night encounter with Japanese surface forces and believing Yamamoto still intended to invade, based in part on a misleading contact report from the submarine Tambor, Spruance changed course and withdrew to the east, turning back west towards the enemy at midnight. For his part, Yamamoto initially decided to continue the engagement and sent his remaining surface forces searching eastward for the American carriers. Simultaneously, he detached a cruiser raiding force to bombard the island of Midway again. It was fortunate Spruance did not pursue, for he had come in contact with Yamamoto's heavy ships, including Yamato, in the dark, and considering the Japanese Navy's superiority in night attack tactics at the time, there was a very high probability his cruisers would have been overwhelmed and his carriers possibly sunk. Spruance failed to regain contact with Yamamoto's forces on June 5th, despite extensive searches. Towards the end of the day, he launched a search-and-destroy mission to seek out any remnants of Nagumo's carrier force. This late afternoon strike narrowly missed detecting Yamamoto's main body and failed to score hits on a straggling Japanese destroyer. The strike planes returned to the carriers after nightfall, prompting Spruance to order Enterprise and Hornet to turn on their lights to aid the landings. Over the following two days, several strikes were launched against the stragglers first from Midway, then from Spruance's carriers. Akuma was eventually sunk by Dauntlesses, while Mogami survived further severe damage to return home for repairs. Dauntless pilot Dusty Cleese again 
flying off the Enterprise, and the only Dauntless pilot to score hits on both the Kaga and the Hiryu, took part in the attack that crippled the Mugami. The destroyers Arashio and Asashio were also bombed and strafed during the last of these attacks. Captain Richard E. Fleming, a U.S. Marine Corps aviator, was killed while executing a glide bomb run on Mikuma and was posthumously awarded the Medal of Honor. Meanwhile, salvage efforts on the Yorktown were encouraging as she was taken in tow by the USS Vireo. In the late afternoon, possibly because of the large amount of debris in the water, a Japanese submarine located them and fired a salvo of torpedoes, two of which struck the Yorktown. There were few casualties aboard since most of the crew had already been evacuated, but a third torpedo from this salvo struck the destroyer USS Hammond, which had been providing auxiliary power to Yorktown. The Hammond broke in two and sank immediately with the loss of 80 lives, mostly because her own depth charges exploded. With further rescue deemed hopeless, the remaining repair crews were evacuated from Yorktown, which sank just after 5 p.m. on June 7th. They were, as you say, they were towing Yorktown, going to tow it back to Pearl Harbor with a 27 degree list at one and a quarter knot per hour. <laughs> what they were doing, that's not a fleet tugout to do that. They would have made it, except two days later, uh, late June 6th, the submarine I-158 got inside the radar range of the destroyers, and they fired uh, four shots. One missed, two caught Yorktown, below the Ridgefield, and one caught the Hammond. The Hammond had come alongside to supply water and electricity. They were going to try to flood the Yorktown and ride it. But that submarine, that one, one torpedo caught the Hammond nearly uh, midship broadside and broke the thing in half. And I, I think nearly all hands went down because their depth charges went off in the water. By the time the battle ended, 3,057 Japanese had died. Casualties aboard the four carriers were Akagi, 267, Kaga, 811, Hiryu, 392, Soryu, 711, a total of 2,181. The heavy cruisers Mikuma sank, 700 casualties, and Mogami, badly damaged, 92 deaths, accounted for another 792 total deaths. In addition, the destroyers Arashio bombed, 35 lost, and Asashio, strafed by aircraft, 21 lost, were both damaged during the air attacks which sank Mikuma and caused further damage to Mogami. Float planes were lost from the cruisers Chikuma and Tone, the dead aboard the destroyers Tanakazi, 11, Arashi, 1, Kazagumo, 1, and the fleet oiler Akebono Maru, 10, made up the remaining 23 casualties. At the end of the battle, the U.S. lost the carrier Yorktown and the destroyer. 307 brave Americans had been killed, including Major General Clarence L. Tinker, Commander, 7th Air Force, who personally led a bomber strike from Hawaii against the retiring Japanese fleet. After winning a clear victory, and as pursuit became too hazardous near Wake, American forces retired. Spruance once again withdrew to the east to refuel his destroyers and rendezvous with the carrier Saratoga, which was ferrying much-needed replacement aircraft. Fletcher transferred his flag to Saratoga on the afternoon of 8th of June and resumed command of the carrier force. For the remainder of that day and then the 9th of June, Fletcher continued to launch search missions from the three carriers to ensure the Japanese were no longer advancing on Midway. Late on June 10th, a decision was made to leave the area 
and the American carriers eventually returned to Pearl Harbor. Historian Samuel E. Morrison noted in 1949 that Spruance was subjected to much criticism for not pursuing the retreating Japanese, thus allowing their surface fleet to escape. Clay Blair argued in 1975 that had Spruance pressed on, he would have been unable to launch his aircraft after nightfall, and his cruisers would have been overwhelmed by Yamamoto's powerful surface units, including the Yamato. Furthermore, the American air groups had suffered considerable losses, including most of their torpedo bombers. This made it unlikely they would be effective in an airstrike against the Japanese battleships, even if they'd managed to catch them during daytime. Also, by this time, Spruance's destroyers were critically low on fuel. On June 10th, the Imperial Japanese Navy conveyed to the Military Liaison Conference an incomplete picture of the results of the battle. Chuichi Nagumo's detailed battle report was submitted to the High Command on the 15th of June. It was intended only for the highest echelons in the Japanese Navy and government and was guarded closely throughout the war. In it, one of the most striking revelations is the comment on the mobile force commander Nagumo's estimates. The enemy is not aware of our plans. We were not discovered until early in the morning of the 5th at the earliest. In reality, the whole operation had been compromised from the beginning by Allied code-breaking efforts. The Japanese public and much of the military command structure was kept in the dark about the extent of the defeat. Japanese news announced a great victory. Only Emperor Hirohito and the highest Navy command personnel were accurately informed of the carrier and pilot losses. Consequently, even the Imperial Japanese Army continued to believe, for at least a short time, that the fleet was in good condition. On the return of the Japanese fleet to Hashirajima on 14th of June, the wounded were immediately transferred to naval hospitals. Most were classified as secret patients placed in isolation wards and quarantined from other patients and their own families to keep this major defeat secret. The remaining officers and men were quickly dispersed to other units of the fleet and without being allowed to see family or friends were shipped to units in the South Pacific where the majority died in battle. Dead men tell no tales. None of the flag officers or staff of the combined fleet were penalized with Nagumo later being placed in command of the rebuilt carrier force. As a result of the defeat, new procedures were adopted whereby more Japanese aircraft were refueled and rearmed on the flight deck rather than in the hangars, and the practice of draining all unused fuel lines was adopted. The new carriers being built were redesigned to incorporate only two flight deck elevators and new firefighting equipment. Replacement pilots were pushed through an abbreviated training regimen in order to meet the short-term needs of the fleet. This led to a sharp decline in the quality of the aviators produced. These inexperienced pilots were fed into frontline units, while the veterans who remained after Midway and in the Solomons campaign were forced to share an increased workload as conditions grew more desperate, with few being given a chance to resist in rear areas or in the home islands. As a result, Japanese naval air groups as a whole progressively deteriorated during the war, while their American adversaries continued to improve. Three U.S. airmen, Ensign Wesley Osmus, a pilot from Yorktown, Ensign Franco Flaherty, a pilot from Enterprise, and aviation machinist mate B.P. Bruno Gaido, the radio man gunner of O'Flaherty's SBD, were captured by the Japanese during the battle. Osmus was held on the Arashi, O'Flaherty and Gaido on the cruiser Nagara, or destroyer Makigumo, sources vary. All three were interrogated and then killed by being tied to water-filled kerosene cans and thrown overboard to drown. 
The report filed by Nagumo tersely states of Ensign Osmus, he died on 6th June and was buried at sea. O'Flaherty and Gaido's fates were not mentioned in Nagumo's report. The execution of Ensign Wesley Osmus in this manner was apparently ordered by Arashi's captain, Watanabe Yasumasa. If Watanabe had survived the war, rather than dying in December of 1943, he would likely have been tried as a war criminal. Of Japanese prisoners from Midway, two enlisted men from Mikuma were rescued from a life raft on 9th of June by the USS Trout and brought to Pearl Harbor. After receiving medical care, at least one of these sailors cooperated during interrogation and provided intelligence. Another 35 crewmen of Hiryu were taken from a lifeboat by USS Ballard on the 19th of June after being spotted by an American search plane. They were brought to Midway and then transferred to Pearl Harbor on the USS Sirius. They were not tortured, tied to water-filled kerosene cans, and thrown overboard alive. Perhaps a difference in cultures, one might ask. The Battle of Midway has often been called the turning point of the Pacific, as was the Allies' first major naval victory against the Japanese, won despite the Japanese Navy having more forces and experience than its American counterpart. Had Japan won the battle as thoroughly as the U.S. did, it might have been able to conquer Midway Island. The Saratoga would have been the only American carrier in the Pacific, with no new ones being completed before the end of 1942. While the U.S. probably would not have sought peace with Japan as Yamamoto hoped, his country might have revived Operation FS to invade and occupy Fiji and Samoa, attacked Australia, Alaska, and Ceylon, or even attempted to conquer Hawaii. Although the Japanese continued to try to secure more territory, and the U.S. did not move from a state of naval parity to one of supremacy until after several more months of hard combat, Midway allowed the Allies to switch to the strategic initiative, paving the way for landings on Guadalcanal and the prolonged attrition of the Solomon Islands campaign. Midway allowed this to occur before the first of the new Essex-class fleet carriers became available at the end of 1942. The Guadalcanal campaign is also regarded by some as a turning point in the Pacific War. And we'll get to that story at some point in the future. Stay tuned next week for an exciting interview with authors Tim and Laura Orr, who are enjoying the success of their new book, Never Call Me a Hero, the story of Dusty Cleese, who piloted a dauntless dive bomber that took a heavy toll on the Japanese fleet at the Battle of Midway, as you just heard, and helped to turn the tide of World War II through his actions. Dusty, the last of the bomber pilots who survived at Midway, would be the first to tell you that he was no hero, hence the title of the book. It was the men who gave their lives so we could enjoy the freedom we have today who were the heroes, he said. This episode is dedicated to their memories and to Dusty. Thank you for your service and rest in peace. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. We're a proud part of the 1001 Stories Podcast Network, which includes 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, and 1001 Stories for the Road, all of which can be found at Apple Podcasts and wherever great podcasts are found. If you wish to sponsor our shows, please contact at 1001storiespodcast at gmail.com, and we'll put you in contact with our sales teams. We really appreciate reviews at iTunes, and we've placed links to iTunes for all three shows in our show notes. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story. <laughs>